So this morning, as we uh, start uh, looking into God's Word, first, uh, next slide, just want to say again, as Pastor Greg mentioned, we are with a ministry called Crescent Project. And in the middle of September, there is an online conference, and it's free, and you can register and watch. It's a three- to four-hour conference on how to reach out to, to the Muslims, and you can watch it on, at your own convenience afterwards. So really want to encourage you to uh, get into that. But this morning, as we look into this passage, what prompted me to share this is because after 17 years, um, in 2006, I was arrested and we were kicked out of the country of Uzbekistan. And for 10 years, at least 10 years, we were on the blacklist with KGB. So we could not go back into Uzbekistan. But in 2016, Uzbekistan had a new president and he made it a law that if you are over 55, you can come into Uzbekistan without any visa. So thank God for good age. We're now way over 55 and we were able to go in after 17 years. And we got reconnected with our house church and also connected with some of the house church networks throughout Uzbekistan. And God showed me some things about what's happening in that country, and especially in the church of Uzbekistan. And um, uh, next slide, you know, as Paul is preaching on this word, he, from this passage, you know, we get um, a glimpse of what's on his heart, but also what's on God's heart about the church. And in the early part of this chapter, he uses God's field or the farmer's field as an analogy, and then he quickly switches over a building that church is actually building a f- on foundation of Jesus Christ. There is only one foundation. But Paul was initially the builder. He brought the Corinthian uh, people to Christ, and then he built the church, and someone else, like Apollos, and someone else will go and continue to build on it. I like the building analogy because just as in Matthew 7, Jesus uses something similar when he says, If you obey my commands, you're building your house on a solid foundation, on a rock. If you don't obey my commands, then you're building on a sand. It takes about the same amount of time to build either on rock or sand. And in that case, you know, within a few years, perhaps in your generation, you get to see the fruit of your labor, whether your life will sustain the storm or whether it will fall apart. In this passage, I believe what comes out is sometimes you don't see the fruit of the labor of the teachers, the evangelists, the missionaries, the apostles, until many generations later. And that's what I appreciate about this passage, whether it's the Church of America, Church of Korea, the ethnic churches here in America, African-American churches, white churches, Korean or Chinese churches, that it may not be until generations later that you get to see what's happening with what was built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ for many years. And the first point, as, we, as my wife read in this passage, that there is only one foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. And we get to see that it is essential and crucial that every church be based, uh, founded upon this, that Christ's death on the cross for our sins is critical. And we get that from Galatians 3.13, and I wanna read from New Life Version because I think it captures well what the Lord wants us to know. And it says there, Christ bought us with his blood, so the church was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and made us free from the law, 
In that way, the law could not punish us. Christ did this by carrying the load and by being punished instead of us. It is written, anyone who hangs on a cross is hated and punished. So it's Jesus Christ who took up on himself our sin, guilt, and shame, and then he set us free. Next is that the church also is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess you with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not only acknowledging and confessing the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, but also his resurrection that's needed for salvation and to be part of this church. But the third point, the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, this is also crucial. And I know somehow in America, growing up in the church culture here, well, it used to be more Christian culture, now it's evading, it's evaporating in many ways, and yet we understand what it means for Jesus to be the son of God here in the U.S., but in Muslim countries where we have been ministering for many years, that is not the case. They don't acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, nor do they see that he has died and rose, risen again from the cross. So next slide. So we, in the Quran, this is what they teach. It says, indeed we, uh, and by their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. So Muhammad was offended by the idea that any prophet of God, so in Islam they acknowledge Jesus as a prophet, one of the prophets of Allah, and they see it as a defeat if God's prophet, Allah's prophet, would be crucified. So they vehemently deny this. This very crux of the gospel of Christian faith of the church's foundation is denied by the Muslims. And this is what keeps them from coming to Christ. Uh, next slide. So there was recently a testimony that we heard of this young girl from Middle East. Uh, I'd like to say maybe she's from Syria. Because of all the atrocities that were happening by ISIS, she turned away from Islam. She basically said, I, I can no longer embrace Islam. And there's a lot of abuse on women especially, and they, are, they have to wear the burqa, you know, they become like ninjas you know, in their own country. They, they have no freedom. So this girl stayed, uh, walked away from Islam, and she began to search for a new faith, and she wanted to join, and somehow there was a sat satanist group in her community. So she went through all the rituals of joining a Satan-worshipping group. But at the very end, the very last ritual or confession that she had to make was that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. And she suddenly, something sparked in her heart. Why do I have to say, I thought we were worshiping Satan. What does Jesus Christ have to do with Satan worship? Why do I have to deny that Jesus is not, that he is the Son of God? And that prompted her to look more into who Christ is, and eventually she became a Christian. Praise God. She was seeking Satan, but God brought her to genuine faith in Christ just because of this. 
You know, what is so important about Jesus being the Son of God? Next slide. So in 1 John 5, 11, it says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you and who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Amen. And this is a passage familiar to us, and we hardly have to emphasize this in the church. But do you know, in the Muslim world, this is such a contention. And there are missionaries working with Muslims in various countries where they are changing the Bible because Muslims are offended by Jesus having the title that he is son of God. And even Christian missionaries are resorting to scripture modified so that the title son of God is removed. This is to the extent that, you know, for Muslims, it is a hard uh, truth for them to accept, and yet it is necessary for a church to be founded in Muslim nations. Next slide. Second point in this message is that Paul goes on to say that after the founding, foundation of Jesus Christ being laid, then you have to be careful of how you build. He says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, and that's the judgment day, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work for what sort of work it is. And, you know, gold, silver, and precious stones, these are uh, material, you know, common elements found in here on earth that usually withstand fire, wood, straw, hay, burn up quickly. And I did some research and supposedly typical fire, the temperature is 800 degrees Celsius, gold and silver melt around 1,000 degrees Celsius. Um, I, I titled this precious stone because emerald, which is one of the precious stones in scripture identified as a precious stone, it will not burn up. It gets disfigured, but, but it lasts through any kind of fire. It doesn't uh, burn away. And I think that's a good imagery. You know, as pastors, as missionaries, as evangelists, we continue to build the church of God. We want whatever we teach to be lasting. And Paul, in his letters, identifies what those precious stones are. He's saying not only the gospel message, proclaiming and preaching it well, but the whole counsel of both the Old Testament and New Testament being emphasized in the church. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says this, all scripture, this is Old and New Testament, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what he wants to do, and that's what he's saying to Timothy as well. Not only that, I believe Paul wants the teachers, the pastors, to live out what they are teaching. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says to the church in Corinth, 
imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ, as I imitate Christ. Not only do they teach it, but they are to live it. And then Paul goes on to say, and as you are building the church, if you, te- if you hear false teachings or any kind of worldly philosophy coming into the church, you must refute it and reject it. And that was his uh, advice and kind of uh, uh, command to his disciple, Timothy. So in 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. And during that time, there, was a, there were, in the churches of New Testament era, struggles with legalism, Judaism, or Judaizers, where the Jewish believers would try to convince the Gentile believers to adapt Jewish laws so that they can become true Christians. And Paul was refuting that and rejecting that. Now, in my own life, next slide, I had two men who discipled me when I first really became a follower of Christ, and I was growing in my faith, and I was a student at Cornell University studying engineering, and God placed two people in my life. One was Pete Cassetta. Um, He was a few years older than me, so by the time I met him, he was my Bible study leader. He was already out of school, but he stayed on the campus to disciple men like me. And he's a good, um, true Italian. Any Italian blood here? God bless Italians. He not only was my Bible study leader, but time to time when I went to his place, he would prepare spaghetti dinner. And he, like true Italian, he doesn't use ragu sauce or anything like that. He, He makes everything from scratch. And even though, you know, when he was graduating from Cornell, he had 4.0 average, which is, phenomenal. He was on his track to be a doctor. He was on pre-med track. Last year of his life at, or studies at Cornell, God redirected him to be a Bible translator, and eventually he and his wife would go to Africa for a couple terms. But because of that redirecting, he started learning how to program coding, that, which would be useful for translation work. And so he remained at Cornell and worked for the university, made some good money, and uh, he could have bought a car, but he was very frugal with himself, and he would buy a used bike, and he, he would go to work that way. Anyway, when we were invited to his place, whenever he made spaghetti dinner, one of the ingredients is bell pepper. And he would go shopping, and he would break off the stem of the bell pepper and throw it back into the pile because it adds extra weight. So I thought, wow, I thought Koreans were cheap and frugal. This guy, you know, these Italians take the cake, you know, there. And yet at the end of that year, he saved about $2,500 and bought Apple Macintosh. And this was in early 80s when that first came out and gave it as a gift to our Navigator staff leader who needed a computer. And later on when I found out about that, I thought, wow, here's a man who follows Jesus who's frugal with himself, but knows how to lavish the love of God on others. And next slide. And this is where I believe what he taught in my life is what was happening in the early church. Second Corinthians 8. 
Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And I believe what Pete Cassetta modeled for me is he first gave himself to Jesus. And because of that, he, he learned how to be frugal. You know, he was the first one to introduce me to yard sale. Growing up as an immigrant, I didn't know. Who wants to go to some place to buy a yard? You know, what? who's selling pieces of yard? And I go there, it's just like huge stuff. And yet, because he was living this out in my life, God taught me. When I had my first engineering job, I gave the whole salary to Jesus. That's not requirement. It's not even tithing. It's beyond tithing. And yet God prompted me to do that from Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 that came from the inspiration and teaching and the modeling of Pete Cassetta. And if you notice here, you know, Paul is saying they gave beyond their ability sacrificially. I believe the church needs to do that. And I'll talk more about tithing. If you're not tithing, you need to tithe, but you need to tithe more than that. And I'm glad I'm a guest speaker, not one of the pastors. There is no ulterior motive, no conflict of interest. And the church is not supporting us regularly, like monthly. I know they give us gifts and honorarium, but it's not, we're not on support. And yet this is what's damaging the church across the world because it's not being taught and lived out in churches. And I'll get to that more later on. Second, uh, next part, uh, Jim Nethery was another mentor in my life. He was a roommate of Pete Cassetta for a couple years, and later at the end of uh, my Cornell years, he was my Bible study leader, and he was renting out a small room in the basement of a fraternity house. And he's the guy on the far left on your screen. Looks like uh, Tom Cruise, really handsome guy, came from Buffalo, New New York, grew up playing hockey. His cousin actually went on to play for New York Rangers. And Jim Nethery was that caliber. And he was a goalie playing ice hockey. When he came to Cornell, as a freshman, he played for the varsity team. And they were winning games. But he was also a strong believer. And he was a gifted teacher and preacher. And I would say he preached better than our campus staff leader. There were ways God gave him a gift of speaking, and he would do things with English I thought that was phenomenal. You know, it's, not, it's beyond just speaking English. It's the way he taught, it convicted us. And yet, because he had this gift, the campus staff leader, at the end of that year, freshman year, said, Jim, you have this gift of discipling men. Why don't you give that up? give up hockey because it would require him three to four hours every day to practice in order to keep the edge. And so why don't you give that up and be a discipler of men? And Jim prayed for about a couple months, and the coach of 
the Cornell Ice Hockey team heard about this, and he was a believer, and he said, Jim, you know, you don't have to give up hockey. Why don't you play for Jesus, you know, go on national TV and just wear John 3.16 on your jersey, and, you know, you can advertise Jesus that way. And Jim knew that that was not what God wanted. So he gave up hockey. And he said for the next year, during his sophomore year, he never went to any hockey games. He wept because hockey was the love of his life. So by the time I met him, it was already under the water. You know, he, he had given up hockey, and he was discipling us. Um, I'm actually taking the photo, so I'm not in that uh, photo. Uh, back then, we didn't know how to do selfie, so that's... Uh, but there were four of us that he discipled. None of us were athletes. We were not jocks. We were nerds, you know, uh, pre-law, pre-med, and two engineers. And he taught us many Bible studies, and I don't remember too much of them. But there is one breakfast I will never forget. And one Saturday morning, he invited us, and he made breakfast, scrambled eggs, toast, and orange juice. And it was the, at the basement of his fraternity house where, the, where he was renting. And you could see remnants of party that was the night before, you know, half-eaten pizza and empty beer bottles and all kinds of garbage. And we ran into his room, and he served us breakfast. And I was thinking at that moment, here is a guy who could be playing for a professional hockey team. He gave that up to disciple someone like me. And that made such an impact on my life. And that's why when it came time for me and my wife to give up our engineering career and our pharmacy career, it was so much easier because of his example in my life. And next slide. And Jesus says this to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And I believe God used Jim's life to put that message into my life, into my heart. If you want to teach about discipleship, then you have to be worthy in God's eyes and give up things in your life that you know what Jesus is saying. It could be your career. It could be a relationship. That person that you're dating may not be the one that God has for you. It could be doing whatever you can to get promoted, and that's not glorifying to Jesus. And he's saying, give that up. I've heard many messages on discipleship, but I will never forget the one that was lived out by Jim Nethery. Next slide. And Paul talks about um, rebuking and correcting. And we see glimpses of that when there are false teachings or false lifestyle or bad lifestyle. And in Acts chapter 8, Peter rebukes Simon the sorcerer, and I won't, we won't read that passage, but if you don't know it, go back uh, when, later on to read chapter Acts 8, where this sorcerer, who was kind of a leader amongst the people in their society, becomes a believer, and he sees Peter 
when he lays hands on people that the Holy Spirit comes on them and they receive the gift of tongue or miraculous gifts. And Simon says, I want to buy this from you. And, w- and there's a sense of greed and for money, wealth, or even reputation. And Peter rebukes him, which was the proper thing to do. And then in Galatians chapter 2, Peter himself is rebuked by Paul when there is prejudice between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, and Peter stands with the Jewish believers against the Gentile believers. And again, you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. And so Paul confronts Peter so that the church of Jesus Christ is not built on any kind of prejudice. Next slide. So what does that look like in time today here in America or in North America or across the world? And so, next slide. Right now, because we have increasing number of Muslims coming into America, there are churches that are hosting iftar dinner during Ramadan. And it's, Ramadan is about a month of fasting where the Muslims will not eat from sunrise to sunset, but they can eat after sunset. And some churches are hosting this event, but is this right? And all the intent is good. You know, we want to connect with the Muslim neighbors, especially the mosque community down the street. We want them to come into the church to develop relationships so that we could pursue the relationship and share Jesus Christ. But here's one of the guidelines actually produced by Church of England. An an iftar is an evening meal with which Muslims end their daily fast during the month of Ramadan, having abstained from all food and drink since dawn. The meal itself is not a service of act or worship. However, prayers will usually take place in between the initial breaking of the fast with a small item of food and the main meal. This guidance is intended to help you think through whether your church might have an iftar. To do so, you'll probably need two rooms or spaces, one for the main part of the event, the meal, and the other one where Muslims can pray. And so now you have to ask, is it okay for Muslims to pray in your church when we know the spirit behind Islam is not our God? It's the spirit of Satan, deception leading them to hell. Is that okay? But churches are doing that. And it's becoming more and more popular in America. So in order to answer that, let me ask you this next question. Personally, let's say you are, next slide, you have, a, you have different house guests that stay with you, and the first one is a worshiper of Molech, the ancient god who demands child sacrifice. Children are burned on the altar to this god. If a worshiper of Molech from Syria or Iraq comes and stays at your house, and one day he brings a little boy and says, can I sacrifice this child in your backyard? What do you say? Next guest, is a Hindu priest from India, and he brings a little girl one day, and you know, they call them Devadasi, which is like a temple prostitute, and he says, after my worship to my Hindu god, can I sleep with this girl in your house? What do you say? Now next slide, or next um, guest is a Saudi Muslim who's staying at your house for a month, and then he asks right up front, is it okay if I f- pray five times a day in your house towards Mecca. What do you say? And when I ask this question, 
at different churches, mixed response, especially on the last one. The first two, they say no, absolutely not. Murder is involved, immorality is involved. You know, the sixth commandment or seventh commandment are broken. But finally, when it seems to be okay, you know, he's not harming anyone. There's religious freedom in our country. What's wrong with my house guests praying towards Mecca in my house? And yet it's your house. You're the head over your house. How can you allow idolatry to happen in your house? And it's flipping the Ten Commandments. Somehow it's okay to break the first and second commandment and offend Jesus, but it's not okay to break the subsequent ones later on, sixth and seventh commandment, because we're offended. And it brings us to a point where if the churches are allowing idolatry, worship of different gods to happen in their church, it's no longer a church of Jesus Christ. And we need to think carefully what is happening not only here, but this is also happening overseas. Next slide. And God, Paul, as he talks about this, he says, the Lord God will evaluate and judge the work of his servants. He says, if anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So they eventually go to heaven, but what they have done will perish. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And this, the word you here is plural. So you, the whole church, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you collectively, in your gathering. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, or the same word is used, defile him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The next slide. And so we see evidences of this, that when God, in the early church, when there was something wrong, God responded right away. And Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, they're not leaders of the church, but they do something that will corrupt the church. They lie to the leaders, to Peter, and they bring part of the sale of their land or property and say, here's, as if it was the entire offering. What prompted them was just prior to that, Barnabas sold everything and laid it at the hands of the apostles. And perhaps they were going for reputation, for a position in the church. And God, I believe, I mean, I believe they are believers, they're Christians. He takes their life They have no longer any purpose to live here on earth, and so God takes them home, but he judges their act, and which becomes a a place where everyone evaluates, how am I giving to the Lord? And in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about not taking the Lord's Supper properly. So there has been, I think, the, the rich come and they get drunk, the poor have no way to participate, they have nothing. And Paul rebukes that, that kind of prejudice and discrimination based on wealth. And he says, and that's why some of you have become ill, sick, or weak, or even dead, asleep, which is kind of euphemism to say that they, they have died. So God judges them. And then in Revelations 2 and 3, we see Jesus commanding and rebuking churches, the seven churches, for what they have been teaching, what they have been living out. Next slide. So at this point, I want to t- 
talk a little bit more about the church history of Korea for a reason. And in late 1800s, the first Protestant missionaries started coming to Korea, and they adopted what's called the Nevius Method. John Nevius was a missionary to China at about the same time, and he came up with these principles. And in Korea, they were modified, and some other things were added. But first, personal evangelism by the missionary. It doesn't matter whether you're a nurse, Bible translator, everyone who comes to Korea from another country, they have to share the gospel. They're not simply a facilitator or custodian at a orphanage. They, too, have to share the gospel. Second, self-propagation. Every Korean who comes to Christ, they have to share the gospel with their family members and friends. And then also they have to disciple and be discipled by those who are more mature in their faith. Three, self-government. That the local believers, quickly the missionaries would raise up local pastors who would oversee the church for self-supporting. And this is the part where the missionaries who came to Korea emphasized you have to tithe. It's a minimum. Because we want your church to be self-sustaining, self-supporting. Do not ask for funds from overseas, especially from America. And what they taught was if you want a church of your own, you build it by yourself with your own hands. If you want a pastor, a full-time pastor of your own, you raise the support and you support him. Don't ask foreigners. Next one, number five, systematic Bible study for all believers, not just the pastors and the leaders, not just men, but the women and children as well. Number six, strict church discipline, just like in the early church. So many of this, much of this was coming from the New Testament principles. If there was immorality, you know, they would uh, discipline that person, even excommunicate that person. Number seven, cooperation and union with other bodies. Network of churches that work together. Not one church was independent on its own. Next one was in, um, in, non-interference in lawsuits. And that comes from, you know, 1 Corinthians, I, I believe, uh, chapter 6, where they said, you know, we will not get, get involved in lawsuits. There should not be any lawsuits with, amongst the believers. Don't take it to the unbelievers. Deal with it within your congregation. And the next one is general helpfulness in economic life problems of the people. So what the missionaries did was, if you don't know, uh, you, you will support your own churches, build your own churches, support your own pastor, but things that were beyond the scope of the local Korean church, we will do for you. They built schools, hospitals, orphanages, economic uh, strength that Korean people did not have. So next slide. So here is a picture of the first Korean church built by the local believers, one of the first churches. Next slide. And then first hospital built in Korea, donated by funds in the U.S., donations in, from the U.S., and they built this hospital. Next slide. And now that's Severance Hospital today. It stands in Seoul, one of the leading hospitals, and this is where Faith's mom came to Christ. Next slide. And first theological seminary, again, built by missionaries. Next slide. First university, one of the first universities in Korea, now it's considered Ivy League school, still stands, still one of the leading schools in Korea, built by missionaries. Next slide. And when the missionaries came to Korea, Korea was a two-caste system. 
The nobility, aristocrats were 10%. Peasants and slaves were 90%. The peasants could not be educated. Very illiterate culture. And you talk about racism here, it's black on white or even white on black. Both wrong. In Korea, it was Korean people against their own people. And we treated the peasants, the slaves, like property. So what you saw in the history of the American, with the slavery system, that was happening in the, in the Korean society. And how can this happen? Our own people treating one another like that. But anywhere there is no gospel, where Jesus is not there, society will crumble to that point. So what happened was when missionaries came in, they started saying, we're going to educate everybody. They started schools where young and old, men and women, children, even the slaves, the peasants, could be educated. And the literacy went from 10% to 100%. Next slide. So here's a picture of Korea devastated by the Korean War in 1950s. Next slide. Here's Seoul today, a sprawling metropolis. Next slide. And we say the global Korean companies like Hyundai, Kia, LG, Samsung, they have to thank the missionaries. Otherwise, they would not exist. Next slide. But I want to bring it to this point right now. According, uh, this was 2020. Supposedly, there are about 135,000 full-time missionaries sent out by the U.S. across the world. I think that figure seems a little high, but let's, according to this uh, research, the next one is Brazil, 40,000. Majority of them are Roman Catholic. One after that is South Korea, about 35,000 Protestant missionaries, and then Philippines and China. So after the U.S., Korea is the second most missionary-sending country in the world in 150-year time, and people are asking, what made that happen? And it's only not only the Holy Spirit working in the churches of Korea, but the missionaries who came emphasized and taught tithing, giving to the church. Next slide. So when we started our church in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, we emphasized these things. I mean, definitely first, we said to the possible seeker, Muslim, who wanted to come to Christ, if you want to become a Christian, you have to deny Islam, reject Islam, deny that, reject that Muhammad is God's prophet, that the Quran is the word of God, and then you can come to faith in Jesus. And then we emphasize these three things. Honor the Lord's Day, come to church, Fourth Commandment, honor the Sabbath. Tithing as a minimum. We said even if you're poor, even if you don't have a job, if you have food, bring a piece of bread to share with the church during fellowship. That is necessary. And then number three, do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, Jesus already said blessings will come when persecution comes to you. What we noticed when we went back after 17 years, we met with leaders of house church networks in Uzbekistan, and somehow they said, this small church in Samarkand, about 30 members, is the second most giving church in all of Uzbekistan. And they said, how did that happen, such a small church? And our own disciples, when we met them, they said, thank you for teaching us those two principles, honor the Lord's day, and tithe. 
because we are able to see God's blessing in our lives because of that. And right now, Uzbek, the church network of Uzbekistan, they have sent four missionary families to the countries around them, other Central Asian countries. But most of the funding for those four missionary families are coming from the U.S. Because the Church of, church of Uzbekistan cannot afford to send them out. And what we found out is some of the other missionaries who came to Korea, Uzbekistan since 1991, so almost 30 years ago, did not emphasize giving and tithing. And it has made the church weak. And they continue to see America. Every time there's a new project, they're coming to America, to the Southern Baptist, IMB, or whomever. Can you give us funds? We want to do something with that fund to do God's work. That should not be the case. And I am sorry to say that we missionaries have not properly built the Church of Uzbekistan. They're still looking to outside for help when by this time they should be able to support themselves. And if their funds are lacking, they can send missionary teams within their own country before they send them out. And for us, my wife and I, when we went to Uzbekistan as missionaries, our salary dropped by five to 10 times. It was a step down for us. For Uzbek believers to be a missionary to the neighboring country, their salary steps up by 10 times. And all of that fund is coming from America. And so the mission, believers, local believers in Uzbekistan, they all want to be missionaries. I want to be a missionary because I don't make enough money in my country, but if I go there, I get a car, I get a house, my kids get education. Who would not want to be a missionary in a foreign country? And it is crippling the church of Uzbekistan. But this is happening, seems like, all over the world. And I want to start here, back to the basics. If you're not tithing, if you're not giving to the Lord, you're part of the problem. Because only when you give to the Lord then you can teach others to give to the Lord. And you know, some people would say, isn't that legalism? It's only Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus says, sell everything, give to the poor and follow me. Which would you rather have, Old Testament or New Testament? <laughs> Next slide. Um, can, can we skip this next slide? And I just, I know my time is out. Uh, if, if we can just read this. Can we read this together? Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And this is Jesus' commission to us, even today, to this church and to all of us across the world. And I know when we go to a country like Uzbekistan or Syria or Lebanon, we see how poor they live and our compassion goes and it says, oh, you don't have to tithe, you don't have to give. But that's not coming from the Spirit of God. That's coming from our own spirit. The best thing we can do to a poor congregation is to emphasize tithing because God said, I will bless you when you give. And we are undermining that and cutting that so that many generations we go back and we see a church crippled 
And if, if the funding is coming from America, they continue to have to listen to American missionary uh, missions leaders, which should not be the case. They need to listen to the Holy Spirit, not the influence from American church. And I'm grateful to say that our believers still continue to tithe, and we got to visit one of our disciples who became a pastor over the 17 years, and not only that, he became overseer of network of churches in Uzbekistan, and finally he was sent as a missionary family to Kazakhstan, and that's why we went to visit with them. And he shared these details with us, and I told him that the church of Uzbekistan is not ready to send out missionaries to other countries. You need to grow. But the amazing thing is in his life, he had been tithing. And so God blessed him. He and his wife had an apartment in Uzbekistan. They sold it. And when they sold it, they made profit from it. And they gave 10% of that profit to the Lord. And it sent such a shock throughout all of Uzbekistan that, that they said this never happened before. They said, all of us, we, we need the money, we keep it. How could you give 10%? This would be thousands of dollars to the Lord. And it's because he grew with that understanding in our house church. So when we were part of that house church, we gave tithe, 10%, our tithe, to our church and appointed leaders to know how to hand that, handle that. And they see, saw us model that out for them. The next slide. So at this point, I'm going to just, I want to close with some photos. So I'm going to ask our media team if you can uh, stop stream, online uh, streaming and recording. The next slide. So because I want to show photos of our, of our recent trip that we, after 17 years, we got to go back into Uzbekistan. And when you're ready, if you go to the next slide. So after 17 years, we were able to go into Uzbekistan, but first part of our trip was in Kazakhstan where we met with our local uh, believers. So this young man standing next to me, in year 2002, he came to Christ. He was 18, now he's about 40, and he, not only he became a believer, he became house church pastor. He and I got arrested. We had to leave in 2006. He took up our house church. Next slide. And that's his family now. He's married with a gifted evangelist, and they have five children, fruitful and multiplying in many ways. And we were into a, a mountain top about 3,000 meters high and just really enjoying our time together. Next slide. And my wife uh, taught ESL classes, English classes at the local school for Uyghur Muslims who are being persecuted in China, and there was an opportunity for her to reach out to them. Next slide. And we, she and a, a, our team also got to teach a local school teachers who teach English classes at their public school and gave them uh, certificates and at the end of one week. Next slide. And then after 17 years, finally, we took this photo right out of, outside of the airport once we were allowed to come into Tashkent, the capital city. Next slide. And our house church continues to meet in Uzbekistan. And here's a gathering, a photo. Next slide. And uh, same, during the same trip, we were able to visit one of the homes of our local believers. And this is where they said to us, thank you for emphasizing 
both keeping the Lord's Day holy and tithing. God has blessed us. This woman who hosted us, she has seven kids. All of them are believers. One of them is preparing to be a pastor. And we heard a testimony to the third and fourth generation of our disciples. What a privilege. But I want to go back. They said, because you emphasize tithing and giving, our hearts were not tied to money. We stopped worshiping money as an idol, and God has set us free. And this is such a message. Perhaps you don't struggle with this. Praise God. But I pray that even today, if you have not given to the Lord, that you would. Because this, we see the impact of that lack of teaching across the world, especially in Uzbekistan after 17 years. So I'm going to close in prayer, and if, if I can have the, uh, the worship team come up. And they're going to lead us into the song, Yes, I Will. And may it also coincide with your giving. Yes, you will. You know, you will. And it's not that God is poor, and it's not that I'm asking you for money, but Jesus, he, did, he died on the cross for us. How could we not give to him everything that we, we have? So let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here this, this morning. And God, I thank you for the missionaries who came to Korea and you gave them that sense of clarity, of vision into the future. And because of their emphasis, especially on giving, on being self-supporting, Lord, the Church of Korea is able to send 35,000 missionaries on their own strength. And Father, I pray that for the Church of Uzbekistan, and I repent, Lord, on behalf of all the missionaries and teachers, if we have not emphasized that enough, that the church of Uzbekistan is still weak in that area, and they cannot be a part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission across the world. And Father, even at this church, Lord, would you encourage, spur on, correct us, that we may give freely and joyfully to this church and to the ministries across the world. Set us free from any kind of love of money, greed, idolatry, that there is only one Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he, you own everything. And help us to give back, Lord, what you already own out of gratitude in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh -huh.